It's the reason that our workforce is so competitive. It's the reason that we even have sports to begin with. And, and here it is. All of us want to be known for something. All of us want to be known for something. In other words, when you think of yourself, there are certain adjectives that come to mind. It's the way that you view yourself, and they're actually really powerful, and they dictate a lot more than we realize. Uh, it dictates, if, if you're single and just starting to date someone, it dictates how you treat that person. If you're married, it dictates how you treat your spouse or your kids if, you, if you're a parent. Uh, it dictates how you interact with people at church, even in, in the workplace. Um, how we think of ourselves is so, so powerful. How, do you, how you think of yourself is so powerful. What do you want to be known for? Or if you took my challenge at the end of the last week's message and you answered this question this week, and I hope you did, what is the one thing you try to convince everyone else is true of you? What's that one thing? How we think of ourselves is so, so powerful because everyone wants to be known for something. And we spend a great deal of time and money and, and energy to to have a filter that we can live through. We spend a lot of effort to make people, oftentimes even God, believe something about ourselves is true. How we think of ourselves is so important. In fact, I'm not discounting that question at all, but I'm wondering if that's actually the question we should really be wrestling with. It's an important thing to, to want to be known for something. But I think all of us want to live truly unfiltered. We really do want a place to be authentic, and we talked last week how church should be that place. I don't really think the question should only be, what do I want to be known for, but who am I known by? In fact, I think the question we should be asking isn't necessarily, what do I want to be known for, but who am I known by? Who knows me? And we think the answer to that question, one of, the, one of the ways to answer that question is in what we would call at our church life groups. And it's really what this whole message series is based around. Now, when all we want is to be known for something, what do you do when you don't measure up? When, when you try to convince everyone else that something is true of you, what do you do when you don't measure up to how you want to be perceived by yourself and other people. Because the truth is that when we don't measure up to who we think we know we want to be, we become tempted to do one thing, to pretend, to become imaginary. We become pretendaholics, and nobody knows the real us. And this is where we get a lot of the hype over social media. As my friend Brad Paisley says, I'm so much cooler online. And you can be anyone you want to be online. And this is why Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook is so great because you can make your life look exactly how you want and wish that it looked. And nobody is going to know the difference. Because we can be so much cooler online. In fact, the, the filters that we come into a space like this with, the filters that we live with in our workplace, sometimes that we interact with our spouse or our kids or the person we're dating, all these filters that we live through, they help us do one thing, and one thing really effectively, and, and that is to fake it. They help us fake 
not only other people, but in a very real way, ourselves. They help us pretend. And do you know what pretending does? It makes us imaginary. It makes us never able to be authentic and be ourselves with other people. When all we're trying to do is just manage an image or a filter about ourselves, eventually the filters come off. I, I really think this is one of the reasons why so many young new couples, when they get married, all of a sudden, like, there's so much conflict for a couple years because when you're engaged, when you're dating, you filter yourself a lot. And you want that person to think, man, I'm going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. And then when you get married, the filters come off. And there's even some times where you're like, who are you? And I think that's oftentimes why a lot of young marriages run into trouble because the filters all of a sudden come off because we can't be imaginary forever. Every single one of us has an imaginary you. Every single one of us has a filter that we live through at some point or another. And the moment we start believing that the filter is reality, is the moment that we stop growing. We get older, but not finer. We get older and not wiser. We get older and people know more about us, but very few people know the real us. In fact, you may be sitting here today and you may think, nobody really likes me because nobody really knows the real you. And in a moment of transparency, I'm going to tell on pastors. Pastors are the worst at this. Now, this isn't meant to be like, oh, poor pastor. That's not what this is. But you got to know, pastors are actually generally the worst at this. In a lot of ways, uh, pastors feel the pressure of always being on. And even when you're not at church, people notice you, and they notice what's in your cart at the grocery store. They, they notice the kind of car that you drive, the bumper sticker that you have. They notice the clothes that you wear. They especially notice how you treat people when you're not in here. Uh, they even pay attention to your kids. That's why they call them preacher's kids. They pay attention. They pay attention to your spouse. And in a lot of ways, it can make true one-on-one, like, real authentic relationships with pastors and, and the people that they minister to very hard sometimes to find. And in a very real sense, many pastors, if I could be transparent again, are tempted to, to pretend. But it's not, ju- it's, it's, it's not just us. Um, all of us do this. But in a very real sense... Uh, if I could be honest with you, you don't want us to be unfiltered. You really don't. You don't want to hear about all of my junk. That would be awkward, and it would be just weird. In fact, this is how some pastors get into trouble because they share maybe a little too much. You actually want your pastor or the, your youth minister, your kid's youth minister or your worship minister, you want them to be who you think they are when they're here when they're with your kids, when they're leading, when they're teaching, when they're preaching, you want them to be who you think they are at church. Let me just give you an example. I promise this didn't happen. The last service laughed a lot, which makes me think they don't think I'm telling the truth, but I promise that this did not happen. But for example, you don't want me to get up here and say, guys, I'm so thankful for our elders. 
You guys are really stand-up guys. Uh, they bailed me out of jail last night again. I really appreciate you uh, bailing me out of jail again when I got pulled over again and had a little too much. And they put, so I'm really glad you bailed me out so I could be here to talk about self-control today. <laughs> you don't want to hear that. It did not happen. But I'm just saying, you wouldn't want to hear that. The same goes, you don't want me to get up here or any of our other pastors get up here and say, you know, I'm just really thankful. Um, my wife turned and looked at me last night and she says, Philip giving you one more chance to not mess this up. So let's start this series on a healthy marriage. You don't want to hear that. But it's not just, it's not just us, though, is it? And to a certain extent, all of us are tempted to pretend. All of us are tempted to be imaginary. All of us are tempted to fake it. And where, and we spent all last week talking about this, where do we pretend the most? Right here. That's right. We pretend the most in church. Spouses look so happy at church. But you may have been screaming five minutes earlier, but you look real happy here. Your kids, they behave so well, at least they better at church when in the car. That's a whole different story. <laughs> we act so pure at church. We act so financially stable at church. We just act so, so happy at church, and sometimes we even just act so sad and pretend there's nothing good going on in our lives, but it's all in, we want to be, buy into this imaginary version of ourselves, and if I could be frank, we are best at faking it here, because all of us really do want to be known by other people. We want to be known for something, but what we need is to be known by some someones. And when you find those people that you can really let your hair down with or your beard, if you're like me, with, when you can be yourself with other people, you gravitate towards them. And the relationships that you form with those people you can be your true self with are inseparable, aren't they? When you find that group of people you can let your hair down with, you are just sold on that relationship. In fact, that may be the reason why you don't really like church and someone, again, had to convince you to come today because you can't be yourself. You feel like you can't be yourself. This is why some of us get into some really negative lifestyles, but we're doing it with other people who actually know the real us, so we go along, we go along with that lifestyle. And the place, and I'll have to convince you of this again, the place where all of this being known by others and this unfiltered living should take place is church. That's the primary environment where being known by others should happen. But what do I mean when I say church? So oftentimes we think when, I, when we say church that it's right here, this gathering now once a week, a service. But I hope you'll see today that it is so much more than that. In fact, the a writer of Hebrews, which is an ancient document. It's actually in the New Testament of, of your Bible. We don't even know who wrote, it, who wrote it. They never identify themselves, but we're so glad that they did write because they write to a group of Jewish Christians who had stopped meeting together. And when you stop attending the gatherings with other Christians, you stop growing. And when you stop growing, you start dying. And the author of this really amazing letter knows this and sees this as an issue, so he writes. And, and what they write, and they summarize it in one sentence, it's just two verses, what the church should look like in Hebrews chapter 10, 
verses 24 and 25. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So, if that's what we're supposed to do, get up, go to someone that you haven't met, give them a pat on the back and say, I spur you on towards love and good deeds. That'd be weird. And we're not going to do that in here because it would be weird. And if you're a visitor, you wouldn't come back. But that's actually not really what he's talking about. This, this environment here wasn't the environment he was talking about doing that in in the first place. Because that would be kind of superficial, wouldn't it? Someone you don't know. It'd be really superficial. What the offer of Hebrews is telling us to do, we actually can't fully and effectively do here in, in this gathering. We can, and, and it was never meant to be that way anyways. This gathering was never formed to be that kind of environment in the first place. But often, we in our busyness... We can try to think that, that this main gathering is the only time we meet with other believers. And for some of us, that's the truth that we live. This is church, and church is one day a week, and then that's it. And this is the only time we are meeting together. But that's actually not what, uh, what the author of Hebrews intended for the church to do. And that's not what Jesus intended for the church to do. And the word used, I love the Greek language because there's so much definition to just one word. But the word used to spur one another on, it's also translated in another way. Provoke. To provoke. <laughs> Can you imagine a church that provokes one another? But that's what, that's what he says to do, is to provoke one another towards love and good deeds. But these Christians that he's writing to, they've done something. They have stopped meeting together, and they have stopped doing life together. And in many cases, a lot of them took themselves out of an environment where they could live unfiltered, an environment where they could grow with other people. And maybe you're doing the same thing today. Maybe we do the same thing. And if you need further convincing, how about this one from the brother of Jesus, a guy whose own brother convinced him that he was God. If you have a sibling, what would they have to do to convince you that they were the son of God? A whole lot. And somehow Jesus does that to James. He convinces him. He says, I am the son of God. And James realized it was true. And James says this in James chapter 5. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, go ahead and go to someone else you don't know and confess your, your really bad sin to each other and then make sure you pray before you're done and come back. That'd be just as weird and you'd probably never come back. And, but that is what James tells his readers to do, is to confess to one another and to pray for one another. But what he's telling them to do, we can't only effectively do in here. There actually has to be something more. He tells his readers to pray for one another, not just the preachers, but everybody. Pray for one another and do life with one another. And we can trust what James says, because again, he watched this being modeled through someone that we all know is Jesus. 
He watched as Jesus lived this way and prayed this way and did life with people this way. But let me let you in on just a little secret. You're right in thinking that that would be weird and that that kind of environment could never actually happen in here. You're totally right in thinking that. And here's the secret. Their connection like that didn't happen sitting in rows like you are now either. Their connection happened in circles. Did they come together like this and worship like this? Yes, absolutely. It was so, so important. It was important the same way it's important to us because that's how you learn what Jesus said. That's how you, you see other believers and you worship and you hear the sounds echoing off the auditorium walls and it's just incredible. They did meet together like that and it was so important, but it did not stop there. Their connection happened in circles with each other in each other's homes around the dinner table and doing life with one another. But often we're tempted to think that it's only this gathering, aren't we? We're all guilty of this, okay? Even, even pastors, everyone's guilty of this. We're, we're tempted to put a lot of stock into only this one day a week gathering. And it is important, but oftentimes we think, you know what, I don't need to add something else to my plate and get with a group of other people. I've just got church. If I can find a church that fits all my criteria, I'm good, I'll invest there. As long as they have me out in an hour and a half, I'm good. That's my place. Or maybe you're on the other side and you're like, I don't even need the church. I don't need to get up early and go. Um, I'll just get together with some friends at Starbucks a couple times a month and just study the Bible that way. But what we've got to see is that we need both. We do. And this is where our walk with Jesus, this is where Christianity comes in the conflict a little bit with culture. Because in our culture, we're kind of fascinated, aren't we, with streamlining everything. We're going to fascinate with it, making everything super easy. If we don't get our food in 30 seconds, we'll go somewhere else. Like, we want things done quickly, so it's natural for us to think that our church experience should be that way. We want something that fits all of the, as many of the needs as we have that we can still get out and, and only have one day a week. But it was never meant to function that way at all. And this is where we come into conflict because we actually need both, and discipleship can't fully happen only in one of those settings. You need both. We can't streamline our spiritual growth. You can't do it. We've got to have both. When the early church had their gatherings and they were spurring one another on, they were not in rows like we sit now. They were in each other's homes. They were walking the streets together. They were doing life with one another. Then, then as they came together like you and I sit now, the relationships that they had formed together were not only seen but felt by the community they were around. That's why it was so irresistible. Because they saw that these groups, these pockets of people made up this larger gathering. And they, the, the culture at the time couldn't realize how all these different pockets of people coming together to worship one thing, a resurrected king who claimed to love them and they fully believed it. That is what made it so irresistible. It wasn't their, only their worship gatherings. It wasn't only their small groups of people. It was them together, doing life together. Now... This actually mattered to them in the exact same way it matters to you and I here today. 
Think about that. 2,000 years in the application, the reason this matters is still exactly the same. And if you're a Christian, this is such good news for Christians. And if you're not a Christian, this is why I think you should become one. Here's this truth. God didn't accept you the way that you were to leave you that way. He accepted you the way that you were to transform you into the best you you could ever become. He wants you to not only get better at life, but to experience full life, which he can show you. He did not accept you to keep you that way. And that is why my most effective and life-changing and memorable moments have happened in the groups that I've been a part of, in the life groups that I've been a part of. In fact, that's the only reason that I'm a follower of Jesus. If it hadn't have been for that group of men in Ohio investing into a teenage boy, I would have never got baptized. I would have never became a follower of Jesus. And do you know who I think does this the best? In fact, I think that all these people probably are Christians, but I, th- I think that these, this group of people does community the best, the CrossFit community. I think every CrossFit athlete should be a Christian because they'd be the best ones. The CrossFit community, if I could find one that was affordable, I'd totally join one. But the CrossFit community is so incredible because that is how I want my group of people to be and to look. That is how I want my life to look. You don't join a gym, a CrossFit gym, to work out alone. You won't happen. You join a CrossFit gym to become known by other people who are trying to be the best themselves they could be. And they are encouraging you to do the same thing, to get that last repetition even when you think you might die. They are encouraging you to do it. You are doing it together. I think every CrossFit athlete should be a Christian because they'd be the best ones. You don't join a gym to stay the way that you are. You, if you do, it's a waste of money, okay? You join a gym to become the best you physically you could ever become. You don't come to church to stay the way that you are. You come to church because God will transform you into the best you you could ever become. And one of the greatest tools he uses is exactly what we saw in the photo. Other people rallying around you, spurring one another on, just like Hebrews says. Now, another little secret is that when you're a part of a life group, when you're a part of a group of other people, your experience in a gathering like this on a Sunday morning or evening is so much more enjoyable because the beautiful voices that you hear echo off the walls, all of a sudden you start to identify as people in your group that you're doing life beside. And it's so, so powerful. Look, we love being in here. There is a lot of changes happening just with our building alone and that's enough to excite a lot of people. We love what we do in here. But we can't become fully who we are meant to become by only meeting here. As much as I love to preach, we can't become all that we are meant to become through preaching alone. And that's why for you to grow the best you can grow and for you to 
for you to be transformed, the best way you can be transformed in the coming year is to be a part of what we call life groups. Because life is better together. And that's why everything that a church, especially a church our size, does, um, that's why a lot of them hinge on their, the health of their life groups. Because pockets of people doing life together, then coming back together, just like in the stories we read last week in Acts, worshiping together a resurrected king. We need each other. So, what do we mean when we say life group? Because there is some confusion. Like, are they like classes maybe that we saw long ago? Like, what, what are they? What do we mean when we say life group? That's a really good question. So I actually stole an answer from someone who says it way better than I could ever say it. If I had to, to sum up what a life group is, it's simply this. Acceptance with a view to improvement. It's real people. It is real friends, and it's real change. It's life together. That's why we call them life groups. And I thought I could maybe try to, sh- like, try to tell you how they work, but I thought it'd be better to show you how they work. And I received a letter a couple months ago from a lady who sits in the seats that you sit in right now. She's a part of our church. And she asked, and I thought it was very appropriate, to share her life group experience. You see, this woman earlier this year had lost her husband of 46 years. Incredible loneliness. She's a part of a life group, and her life group rallied around her and said, give us a list of the things you need done in your house, because she had a lot that needed done. And like many of us, you know you'd do this. You're like, no, I'm fine. I can do it myself. But they were persistent. And she told me that they showed up one Saturday, her whole life group, and her whole house apparently was painted and cleaned, and they, they, they fixed it all up for her. And I thought, oh, that's really nice. They did that for you one time. And she goes, no, no, no. She just told me this this morning. She, this past Wednesday would have been their 47th anniversary. She wasn't alone. Do you know why? Because her life group was there. They said, no, we're going to be there with you. And she was not alone. Life is better together. Here's a quote from her letter. I have never felt more loved and supported. And she prays this for you. My prayer is that everyone would experience having a life group come alongside them no matter what. I can't put in the words what this group means to me. I love them all. That is unfiltered living. And that is what Jesus invites us into with other people, life together. Now, how is this going to work? Look, it's really simple. If you're not a part of a life group, if you don't really know too much about what that is, we're not going to do a commercial for life groups. We're just going to tell you this. Go to the website. It's brand new. We just, we just redid it. Go to the website. Click on the Connect tab and go down to Adults and click on Life Groups, and it will explain what life group is because there's actually two options for you. One... Join an existing life group. There are a few that would really like to have more people. But because of the intimate nature of a life group like we just shared with that woman's story, there's a second option that I'm going to really challenge you to do. And it says, I want to start a life group. Now, 
that can seem scary, but I don't want you to worry about what that means. I don't want you to worry about like, oh, I just, what, what would we even study? Like, I'm not a theologian. You don't have to be to be a life group leader. But don't worry about what to read or study or anything because that's what we are here for. And you start that process by saying, I want to start a life group and we will come alongside you and help you do exactly that. If you can love on other people, you can be a life group leader. And we would love to see more and more life groups in the coming years just sprout up all over the place and for every single one of us to come together and be experiencing what that looks like. Whether you're college age, married, single, widowed, divorced, whatever it is, we want you to have a place where you can be with other people because life is better together. So your, your homework, your challenge is if you're not a part of one, become a part of one by maybe starting one or joining an existing life group. And if you are in a life group and you've met for longer than a couple years, um, have a conversation and maybe, maybe there's multiplication where you become two or three life groups with new people. However that looks, we are here to help you in that journey. Now, I know what you're going to say. The filtered you doesn't have time to be in a life group. The filtered you, you have kids, and you have kids' schedules, and you have a job, you have college, you have all this stuff. You don't have time to be in a group. I understand. I'm the same way. The filtered you doesn't have time, but the real you, the unfiltered you, is dying for this. Your marriage could be dying for this. Your relationship with your kids could be dying for this. Your walk with Jesus may be dying to be a part of a group of someone's doing life together. We all know who we do image management with. Who are we doing life with? Because that's what really matters at the end of the day, is when our spouse passes away after 40-some years and we are not alone on the anniversary, that is who we're doing life with. And that is our hope for everyone here to experience. If you will get real, if you will drop this image management lifestyle and, and you become this unfiltered person who welcomes in this, what, what we're talking about, this community, Jesus will become more real to you than you could have ever imagined. We call them life groups, they work. Other churches call them small groups. It doesn't matter what you call them, they work. And do you know what the best part about being in a life group is? And I'll end with this. I think this is the best part. This is my opinion, okay? So you take it for what it's worth because everyone has a different life group experience. But this is why I think this is my favorite part of being in a life group, okay? Not only do we get to do exactly what we saw in Acts and like Jesus do with his followers, that's really cool, but here's my favorite part. You get a front row seat to seeing Jesus transforms somebody else's life and you get to be a part of that story. And that is powerful. That's my favorite part. Because we come to a place where we realize Jesus, the guy who predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, is who he says he is, knows you. And he loves you. And he wants others to experience that as well. And he wants you to find community. That's the best part about being in a life group. So would you commit to this year having a conversation with your family yourself 
and become a part of a group of someones that when we come together in here, we are known by each other and by God. Relationships, that's what makes what we do in here so powerful. And it's into a relationship that Jesus is calling you into right now. Let's pray. God, we know that breaking free from the comfort of sitting anonymously is is hard to do. But we want to experience a front row seat to watching you transform other people's lives, not just our own, but other people's. So would you please challenge us this next year to be known by other people? Would you challenge us, God, to ditch the filters and to start living unfiltered? And it's in your name we pray, amen. Look, if anything that's ever said just resonates with you or you just wanna have a conversation, of course you can, you know, with the high-tech stuff, you can email and call and all that stuff, but myself and some elders, we're always down front and we'd love to talk with you. I'll be sitting right over here. If, if you'd like to have a conversation and find out more about who Jesus is and what this means, we would love to talk to you. Let's stand.